We've been memorizing Psalm 63. And let's, as you see it on the side screens, uh, for those of you that have been memorizing it, let's say it together. For those of you that haven't, please read and please read loudly as we begin today. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. May the Lord bless his word. You may now be seated. My name is Jeff Bennett. The privilege of being the lead pastor here. Welcome to each of you this morning. If I don't get a chance to say it at the door, just wanted to welcome you now. And for our online community, welcome to you. So glad that you are either with us now live or at a later time. I have three stories to begin with today. And as I tell the stories, each one ends in a moment. And the question I'd like you to answer is, in the next moment, how confident would you be of God's blessing in your life? How confident would you be of God's favor in the next moments? Here's story number one. You wake up before your alarm goes off. You've got lots of energy. Get out of bed and you normally spend 15 minutes each morning reading the Bible and in prayer and journaling. And today you've got a little bit of extra time. And as you open up the Word, it's like those scriptures were written just for you. You're refreshed. You're built up. It's a profitable time in the Word of God. You pray and sense God's presence. You head out the door in a good mood, sensing God being with you, and the day continues along. Anything good that comes your way, you sense the joy of God. And anything that maybe doesn't go so well, you're just content in it. It's a good day, you and God together. Then at the end of the day, you're sitting in a coffee shop alone. Along comes a friend you se haven't seen uh, for a long time. They sit down at the table with you, and you realize very quickly, this friend is really open to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They're, they're ripe to hear the gospel, and you have just such an opportunity in the next moments to share Christ with them. How confident are you of God's blessing and favor in the next moment. That's story number one. Story number two, a little bit different. Your alarm goes off and you can't believe it's morning already. You hit snooze more times than you want to admit. When you finally roll out of bed, you're running way behind schedule. You see your Bible in the spot where you normally meet with God, but you don't have time. You sort of flip open, read a verse, but it feels more uh, like a duty than it does a delight. 
you're running late, you're irritated, you're frustrated, you say a quick prayer to God, not really sure whether he's heard or not. You head off for all the day for what the day has before you. You left the house frustrated and annoyed with yourself, and the day continues frustrated and annoyed with other people you meet. Your joy continues to diminish, and your irritation level rises. It's not a good day. And then at the end of the day, you find yourself in a coffee shop, and along comes a friend you have not seen in a long time. They sit down at the table with you, and very quickly, you realize this friend is ready to hear the good news of Jesus. They are ripe for you to share Christ with them. Same question. How confident do you feel of God's blessing and favor in the next moment? That's story number two. Story number three is the story of Psalm 63, where we find David as he writes these words. Let me just review. David is in the desert spiritual desert, literal desert, and the reason he's having all of these experiences is because his son, his beloved son, Absalom, has committed a coup against his father, against him. The one he loved has turned on him and betrayed him, and now David, as king of the nation, is in jeopardy of losing his kingdom, losing his followers, he's lost his family, and he's probably fairly close to losing his life. That's the crisis David is in. But as we mentioned in week one, this is a crisis in some ways of his own doing. If you know the story of David, you know that early on in his life or early on in his kingship, he committed adultery with a married woman, Bathsheba. He, uh, after that, she got pregnant and he tried to cover it up. When the cover-up didn't work, then he had her husband murdered and he married her to complete the cover-up. But eventually, it came out. It all came out through Nathan the prophet that David had committed adultery and murder and used the nation apparatus, the army, to have Uriah Bathsheba's husband killed. And in a great moment in Scripture, as all of this comes out, David prays such a simple prayer. Father, forgive me. He, he, just, he just confesses his sin before God. I think he says, God, I've sinned before you. It's a simple prayer where he experiences the total forgiveness of God. But yet, in those moments, Nathan also says this, and here's a summary of it. The sword will never depart from your house, David. And Nathan says, David, what you tried to do in secret in the future will be done in public with those close to you. And so in that moment before Nathan, David knows that he has failed. He's failed as a man. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a husband. He's failed as a king. He's failed at every possible level. And what Nathan tells him is there is seed sown into your family that are poisonous. And they're at one point going to come to harvest. And this is the moment where the harvest has come around. Nathan's rebellion and pride and bitterness and anger and hostility, Absalom, sorry, all of that, trying to murder his father, is all what Nathan predicted. The sword will never leave your house. And so I'm not trying to excuse Absalom for his choices here, not at all. But if we're looking at it from David's perspective, David's in a moment where he realizes he has lost everything, and the reason he's lost everything, it's his fault. The reason David is in jeopardy of losing his life, he's losing his kingdom, his family, his followers, is because of his sin. So we've got three stories. The good day story, the bad day story, and now 
the David story where it probably couldn't get much worse. If you're reflecting on your past choices and how they are coming to bear, but it's the same question. How confident would you be of God's blessing, of God's favor for you in the next moments? Good day, bad day, and then David's moment here in the desert. How confident are you? Well, let's look and see. We read verses 1 through 8, but we come to Psalm 63, verses 9 through 11. As David ends, he's been thirsting for God. He's been saying, God, I just want you. I just want you, the giver, not the gifts. God, I'm just, I want you. I'm seeking after you. But now, here's where he ends, and you'll see the verses on the side screens. I hope you've got them with you. 9 through 11, here's what David writes. Look at his confidence level. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. These are vivid words here. Vivid words. David's talking about his enemies and the ultimate destruction that will come their way. You can see that in 9 and 10 in the bottom of verse 11. But then we'll go to the next slide where you see verse 11. And then here's what David says. Here's what he says. Listen to what he says. But the king will rejoice in God. Now this is so interesting. David has just talked about the ultimate destination of his enemies, and now he says, but the king, he's talking about himself in the third person. He's the king at this moment, and the king will rejoice in God. All along through the psalm, he's been talking about himself in the first person, but now he switches to the third person. How interesting. In fact, this is why most scholars place this psalm during the time of Absalom's, you know, during this time in history, because David here is calling himself the king. And it's probably the only time we know of recorded in Scripture where David was in a desperate situation in the desert. Even if this is a time early on before he was king, and he was, you know, looking, he was, when he was fleeing Saul, the same principle still applies. David is talking about himself in the third person, and he's saying the king will rejoice. And all who pledge their allegiance to God will glory in him. Do you see his confidence there? There's an author called Derek Kidner, and he's written these Psalms commentaries. They're just wonderful in two volumes, very pastoral, not academic, so wonderful. I spent a year reading through the Psalms and read a Psalm and read what he wrote. They're just so good. But here's what he says, what David is doing here, and you'll see it on the side screens. This is a reassertion of David's calling, which was from God, and a vowel that it cannot fail. David, in this moment, is totally confident, and he steps back and he says, Here's why I'm confident because God has called me king. God has made some promises towards me. It's like David saying, It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter what kind of king I've been. It doesn't matter what's gone on in the past. I'm the king, and I know what God has promised me. I know who I am. I know his call on my life. Do you see his confidence here? It's not in his past. It's not in him being a good king. And at this moment, he's feeling anything but that. But it's in the promises that God has given him. And he's inviting everyone else to join in that confidence. All who swear by God. 
All who put their faith and trust in him will find God loving and faithful. This is remarkable. His life is a total mess, but yet he's utterly confident. He's saying, God, all I want is more of you. And you think just for a moment, if David is confident in his kingly calling, if he's confident in what, Christ, or what God has promised him, just think how much more confident we can be today as we think about what God has said to us because of Jesus Christ. So that's the third story, the worst story, where there, you know, and David is fully confident. Now, so go back to your two stories, the good day story and the bad day story. What, what the standard answer would be is you would feel less confident on the bad day and more confident on the good day. We, we find it hard to believe that God would actually, he would want to favor us just as much on the bad day as he would on the good day. But let me ask you this, does God work that way? Is this the way God works? And I would say no, no. Let me say it this way. God's blessing towards us is not dependent on our performance. God's blessing towards us is not dependent on our performance. We think if we were perform well, then God will do this, but if we don't perform well, then God won't bless me because I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. I haven't worked for it. But look at David. Look at David in the third example. He's so confident. He's so hopeful. He's like, the king will rejoice in me. I just know who I am before you, God. There's another great example of this in Revelation verse, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where John on the island of Pathmos is just so confident in his future in God. And he's, you know, he's, he's in a very dark situation, but you can just read those verses and see his great confidence. So here's my thesis today, that God's blessing towards us does not depend on our performance. So how does that work itself out? Well, think of the bad day. In the moment, in the bad day, your friend comes and sits across from you. What should we pray? What should we say? Well, in that moment, we should run to the cross. We should run to the cross, and we should say, God, I've sinned today. This has not been a good day. I am unworthy of this opportunity. I'm unworthy of you. But Jesus, in this moment, I know that Christ died for me. And he died for me so that my sin would be forgiven and so that I could experience your blessing and your favor and your presence. That's why Christ died for me. And so I come now to you, Jesus, and I pray you would bless this moment. Not because of my own goodness, but because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. This is not a view where we should be casual about sin. I'm not saying live however you want. No, this view says, no, sin and holiness matters, but in that moment, we're not trusting in our own goodness. We're trusting in Christ. What should we do on the good day? What should we do on the good day? Well, on the good day, we should run to the cross and say, Jesus, I am unworthy of this opportunity. Thank you that you gave me the grace to feel your presence today, but I now come to the cross, Jesus. And not because of my own goodness, not because of my good day, I just come and ask that you would favor and bless me in these next moments. You see, the trap of the bad day is we can think God will not bless us because it's been a bad day. The trap of the good day, we can think we have earned God's blessing. God sees how good we are, and thus he is going to bless us. Again, let me say this, holiness matters. Holiness deeply matters. Matters. 
But think of it in this context. How holy do you have to be for God to bless you? How perfect do you have to be for God to work, to, for God to favor with you? And think about it in these terms. If the greatest two commandments are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you know, if you think of that as the standard, just for a moment, have we ever really had a good day? You know, just be humble, right? Have we ever really fully ever done that? How well do you have to do that before God would bless you? Here's what I would say. Anything that happens in a good day, anything that happens in a good day is only because of the grace of God, not because of our own goodness. Let me say it this way. If God's blessings were dependent on our performance, just take this humbly for all of us. If God's blessings were dependent on our performance, his blessings would be very small indeed. Because we're really not that good. Our goodness is always tainted by our selfish motives, our imperfections, our egos, the subtle little things we do. For a moment, if we begin to consider the depth of our sin and see how it permeates through everything, we realize in a moment that we're never really have ultimately a good day before God. We never can earn his blessings. It's all through Christ. And see, what David is teaching us in here in this psalm is he just says, the king will rejoice in God. I know where I stand, and in many ways we stand on firmer ground. We look to Christ alone, not Christ plus our performance, just Christ alone. We are saved by grace and we live every day by grace. When we pray, it's not like God's looking down and saying, let me examine their performance to see how good they are, to see if they're worthy, because no one is worthy. Rather, he looks down to say, are we trusting fully in Christ? We've had some series applications for this, these three weeks in Psalm 63. One was the memorization, and we did that earlier. Uh, I'll talk about the fasting in a, in a moment, but the third one, and you'll see it on the side screens, was to read a book. And I just encouraged you all, we've, we have a few left for sale, called the, uh, the Discipline of Grace. And if you bought that book, and if you've been reading it, here's what you know. I've stolen some of this from the first chapter. And this is a great book. And the first chapter is worth the whole price of the book. So some of you have been reading, you know I've stolen, so let me say this, let me just keep stealing from the book, because the first chapter is so good. But in the first chapter, here's what we're going to see, we see some diagrams that Jerry Bridges draws. You'll see the first one come up on the side screen. Sort of divides our life into two categories, our birth to our salvation and our salvation to our death. You know, some of you have an exact moment where you know you trusted in Christ, you turned from your sin, and you know his forgiveness and you know the change he brought in your life. Others of you know it happened in a season of time. Over a week, a month, a year, you know the season that it happened. For some of you, you know this is divided perfectly in the middle. For some of you, it's one way or the other, but you know there was a moment, a season, where you moved from being an unbeliever to a believer. We weren't all born believers. We come to a moment where we must make a decision and receive all that Christ would offer us. On the next slide, we just simply think about what's the message that people need to hear in that first stage of life. Well, we would, there's many things that people need to hear, but if we were summarizing, it would be the gospel of grace. There's nothing you do to earn your salvation. 
not your morality, not your good works, not your religion. It's only trusting in Christ that allows us to be saved. It's only trusting in him. It's not our performance that gets the blessing of salvation. It's not our performance that gets God favor, that gets relationship. It's only Christ, totally him. That's the message of the first half. I think we would all agree on that. But oftentimes when we think about the second half, we think this, and you'll see the next slide, where then the second half becomes about discipleship and holiness and service and the disciplines. And I'm not negating any of those things. They all are important. They all are a part of that journey. But if that is the primary idea, it's easy for us to fall into good and bad day thinking that my relationship with God is based on how good I've been, on how my performance is. In fact, let me show you the next slide. Here's what it should be. It's all trusting in Christ for the first half of the journey, and it's all the gospel of grace in the second half of the journey. See, there's only two ways we relate to God in the second half. We either relate to him on the issue of our performance, or we relate to him by grace. And if we relate to him on our performance, two things are going to happen. We're going to perform really well and feel proud of ourselves. And we're going to look down on other people and we're going to say, look at me, I've earned the blessings of God. And we do that in some moments. We all tend to go there. But on the other side of that performance, there'll be moments when we don't perform well, where we're not as successful, as not as diligent, and then we feel guilty. We feel like a failure. And we don't expect God will bless us. We say, I don't deserve it. I don't merit it. That's the bad day thinking because we just don't feel like we are good enough. Both of those are a performance-based relationship with God. The good day thinking thinks God will bless me because I'm in good. And the bad day thinking thinks I don't deserve it because I'm guilty. I'm a failure. But let me say this. We do not relate to Christ in the second half on the journey based on our performance. We relate to Christ only based on Christ. God never intended, God never intended that we would relate to him directly. He never intended that. We always need Christ in the middle. Our performance would never be good enough to be acceptable to God. The only way we relate to him is by coming to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you can see this, it enables us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. Because we can just come before God and say, God, here I am. Here's the depth of my sin, and I just come before you. I'm not playing any defensive games. I'm not rationalizing. I'm not excusing God. I'm just coming before you saying, this is who I am, and I'm just totally, completely trusting in Christ. When you come in that moment, there's such confidence. There's such freedom. There's such hope. There's such help for us. Now, I know some of you, if you're processing this, you may say, well, Jeff, people are going to take advantage of this. People are going to hear this and say, you know, it doesn't matter what they do, and they're just going to run out and enjoy sin. Well, let me say this. If you hear what I'm saying today, and we look at the cross of Christ, where he suffered so brutally physically, where the emotional betrayal and pain that he went through, where the spiritual separation of God. If you're looking at the cross of Christ this morning and all you're seeing is, oh goody, now I can go out and enjoy some sin for a season, let me say this, you don't understand the cross of Christ. 
right? If you've heard me say people can take advantage of this, you are totally and completely understanding what I'm saying. But anyone who would take advantage of it has never fully looked at the depth of what Christ did for us on the cross. The other thing you could say is, well, this will demotivate people. You know, if God just is ready to bless us and favor us, not because of our goodness, but just because of what he's done for us, for Christ, people won't be motivated anymore. Well, I, I admit, guilt and failure can motivate us for a season. It, it's quite good. It can motivate us. Uh, duty can motivate us as well. We should do this to earn it. They both motivate us for a season. But over time, they wear us out. The only long-term motivation that really lasts in our souls is the motivation of grace. Where we say, God, I cannot believe you would be this good to me. I cannot believe you would offer me salvation for nothing I have done. And I can't believe each and every day of my Christian life I can just come to you and you would favor and bless me just because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. When you get your head around that, you say, oh God, I long to know you more. I want to run and know more about a God like that who just loves me and is gracious towards me unconditionally. You know, this week we uh, spent some time fasting as a church. Thank you for those of you that participated in that. Maybe took 24 hours, took a meal. For some of you, maybe fasted more than you've ever fasted in your life before. Thank you for that. Even as Mark shared, I trust it was a rich experience for many of us as a church. But as we set that up, I was very careful to say, to not say this, let's fast so God will bless us. Let's fast so God will do this for us. Now, but let me share this. We were out in the harvest on uh, Wednesday. Some of you know we go out. This week we were knocking on doors. 14 of us just out engaging with people in our community, only looking for people that are interested, offering to pray and offering to share the gospel. We were out this Wednesday as we were fasting and praying as a church, and we had one of the best days we've had in a long time. Just such openness, such friendliness, such engagement. Every team came back just saying, wow, everybody was soft-hearted today. Had one encounter, one of our pairs had an encounter with someone they have known for a while, had become unacquainted with, and just such an opportunity to challenge this young man and where he was in his faith journey and see him take some steps forward. So this was a wonderful week. Now, so here's what I could say. We fasted and we prayed as a church, and so God blessed us. Now, I could say that. Or, now, for those of you that fasted and prayed, you go, oh, look at me. You could leave very proud. We fasted and prayed. Look at what God did. I was a part of that. Or, I could make some of you feel really guilty right now, and you didn't fast and pray. You think if you had fasted and prayed, how much better it would have been. Think of how many more people we would have met. You know, it could go either way. You're either going to leave proud or you're going to leave discouraged. But let me say this. Here's what we did this week. We fasted imperfectly. Imperfectly. That's what we did. Sorry. That's what we did. None of us could say we fasted in a way that honors the majesty of Christ. None of us could say the way we fasted and pursued God was worthy of what he did for us on the cross. But we fasted imperfectly, and here's what God did. He was gracious to us. That's what our God is always like. He sees our imperfect holiness. He sees our imperfect activity. He sees our imperfect efforts. And he just showers us in grace. 
And when I revel in what God did this week, I say in my heart, oh, I just want to fast more. I just want to know Christ more. I just want to know that kind of God more. God's blessing does not depend on our performance. That's where David leads us. The king will rejoice in God. God, David, how can you have such confidence in who you are in this moment? Your whole life has fallen apart because of your sin. No, but God has said something about me. How much more can we say what God has said about us on the cross, what Christ has promised us in those through the cross? Let me end with two challenges. One is if you're still on the first half of your journey, you're still on the first half of the journey, oh, wouldn't you come to Christ today? Ava, thanks for your baptism testimony and how you came to Christ and trusted in him. And wouldn't others of you run towards Christ and receive the grace he offers? The Bible says this, there is a narrow door and it's Christ. And it says, make every effort to enter through him. And if you've never made that decision today, never received the forgiveness he wants to offer, oh, wouldn't you run Get your way through that narrow door and find Christ. But then for many of us on the second half of the journey, as I've just asked the people on the first half of the journey to come to Christ, second half of the journey this week, oh, wouldn't you come to Christ this week? Come to him, not in your performance, but just based on the cross. And wouldn't you come and just experience his out of there, know the confidence the freedom of where you stand with him, how he wants to bless and favor you, remembering the greatest blessing is just knowing him himself. Wouldn't you come this week and just rest there? Let me pray for us. God, this is unbelievable. You see how wired we are. God, we always want to earn and perform for you and for others. And oh God, I pray, Lord, you would help us rest today in the cross of Christ that you never meant us to relate to you apart from Christ. We could never relate to you on our performance. So God, we just come covered with the blood of Jesus and all he did for us. And God, may our confidence rest solely and completely there and grow that this week for us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Next week. Uh, Vision Sunday, please plan to stay afterwards, activities, lunch together, a great opportunity. And let me just remind you, uh, four words we end every service with, it reminds us of the mission we are on, Harbor, we are sent.